When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. I recently posted two fun bonus episodes to my Patreon account. First, for my indie bookstore series, I interviewed Kimberly Taws at the Country Bookshop in Southern Pines, North Carolina, about her store, the alchemy of finding the right book for a customer, her book recommendations, which include a number of books that I had not heard talked about anywhere else, which I personally loved, and how she decides what titles to carry in the store. Second, for my upcoming releases series, I highlight the titles that look the best for January 2022. Thanks to the fabulous people that have joined my Patreon group as page turners. If you have not yet and want to learn more, the link is in my bio. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. Today, I am speaking with Wiley Cash about When Ghosts Come Home. Wiley is the New York Times bestselling author of A Land More Kind Than Home. He's been a fellow at Yaddo in the McDowell Colony, and he teaches fiction writing and literature at the University of North Carolina, Asheville, where he serves as alumni author in residence. He lives in North Carolina with his wife, photographer Mallory Cash, and their daughters. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Wiley. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed When Ghosts Come Home. Before we get started, why don't you give us a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet? So the novel takes place in the fall of 1984, and it opens when a middle-aged sheriff on the coast of North Carolina, the southeastern coast of North Carolina, where I live, is awakened in the middle of the night by the roar of a low-flying aircraft passing over his house in the middle of the night. And he knows there is no good reason for an aircraft of that size to be coming in this low, this late at night to an airport this small. So he drives out in the middle of the night to a little municipal airport just on the mainland. And what he finds out there changes not only his life, but the life of this small North Carolina community forever. It truly does. How did you come up with the subject matter for this book? I was so curious as I was reading. Well, books come from all kinds of places. My wife is from this area originally. She was raised in coastal North Carolina. And we moved back here. We had done quite a bit of moving around, but we moved back here in 2013. And almost as soon as we moved back, I met someone at a literary event in another part of North Carolina 
And I said, we live in Wilmington and my parents live down the road in Oak Island, North Carolina. And this person I was talking to said, oh my gosh, did you ever hear about that plane crash with this enormous aircraft that was too large for the runway? Crash landed and they had to hire a stunt pilot to fly it away. And I thought, no, I haven't heard of that story and I will never forget that story. And so (laughs) it just stayed with me for a long time. And at that time, I was working on another novel that came out in 2017 called The Last Ballad. And then once I was kind of done with that book, I went back to these, the idea of that airplane, what little bit I, I'd heard of it and what I knew of it. And I never looked into the, to the true story of it very much because my mind just went so wild with making up the rest of the story. And during that time, we had two little girls. We've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. So I've got a wife who is from this area. I've got two daughters who are from this area. And so I was given this great story starter. And that's what writers need to really get going. And then I had the emotional heft of having three of the most important people in my life being of an area. You know, I'm from the western part of the state. So writing about eastern North Carolina was a way for me to try to know this place in the same way that my wife and my daughters do. So as you began to write about it, did you have to do a lot of research? I mean, obviously you live there now, but did you have to kind of look back in time a little bit? And your book is set back in time too, so I'm sure you did research surrounding that. But just right now, I'm asking about the research surrounding that part of North Carolina. A little bit, yeah. You know, North Carolina is such an interesting place because the the various regions are so distinct from one another. And, you know, the eastern part of the state is very different than the western part of the state. And it's got a much more intense and violent history, especially in terms of racial violence, cultural memory, historical injustice. You know, Wilmington, which is just up the road from where my novel is set, is the site of the only successful coup in American history when a race massacre happened in 1898 and Black businesses were overtaken, Black men were murdered in the streets, then the government was overthrown. You know, that happened in 1898, and that kind of legacy has a way of burrowing into a region's DNA and, and not, not being unable to let it go. And then, of course, during school desegregation and following the civil rights movement, there was a lot of violence in New Hanover and Brunswick County where my novel set. And so I really had to look into those things and I ask myself, you know, not being from here and not having my parents having not been from here, what kind of things would I have grown up hearing about these events? if I heard about them at all. And for for Black people who are native to the area, what would they have heard growing up? Because they certainly would have heard a lot more than many white children would have heard. For sure. And then also you said it in 1984. So why did you choose 1984? And did you have to look a lot into that time period as well when you were doing research? I kind of did. You know, I, I chose 1984 for a couple of reasons. You know, 1984 was the first time. I was seven during the 1984 re-election of Ronald Reagan. And 1984 was the first time as a young person that I was really aware of political and social culture, really. You have like, you know, Michael Jackson's album Thriller. I was very aware of that. I was very aware of Michael Jordan going into the NBA. I was very aware of Ronald Reagan and Morning in America, and City on a Hill. So my coming of age was really in the mid-1980s. And where I was growing up in, in Gastonia, North Carolina, this former mill town, 
if you were a white middle-class family during the 80s, you were more than likely conservative. And if you were conservative, you were Christian. And if you were Christian, you were Baptist. And if you were Baptist, you were this. And so I was surrounded by kind of this group identity that I never really questioned. You know, when I heard that it's morning in America, I didn't ask, well, is it morning for everybody or just me? Is America a city on a hill for everybody or for just my family? And I really wanted to go back to that moment because I was writing this book primarily in 2019 and 2020, raising young children who were not so different in age than I was in 1984, when a lot of those conversations about race and class were driving the news cycle. And it was just an interesting time for me to go back to while also thinking about our contemporary moment. Well, that was going to be my next question. As I was reading the book, obviously it is set in 1984, and there was a lot of cultural upheaval and things happening then. But over and over again, I keep thinking, other than cell phones and a few other things, this could be taking place today. It could, yeah. You know, a lot of the things that, that were happening in the news were, were happened in the novel. You know, there's, there's violence around a construction site. And of course, I was thinking about the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, which we're seating jurors for that trial right now, the, the, the three men who killed him. And so I was thinking about all of those moments. I was thinking about, you know, there's a scene in the novel where a group of white supremacists go on a night ride in a black community. That happened here uh, in one county north of New Hanover County just a couple of years ago, where some white guys with guns, one of them an off-duty police officer in uniform, shows up at a high school kid's house and demands that he come outside. And so those things are still happening. And so, you know, people want to believe that the past is this mysterious fairyland that we don't have to call on to make sense of our contemporary moment, when in reality, it's quite the opposite. And the politics, that's the part that I really kept thinking, oh my gosh, we really are living so much of this now even though it also was the case in 1984. It was a little discouraging. You know, it is. It is. It's two steps forward and one step back, or one step forward and two steps back. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes we stay in place and we run in place. But as long as we're moving, you know, whether we're covering ground or not, that's the, it's not the important thing, but it's something to never lose sight of and to try to generate energy from that movement, even when it's uphill or against the tide or in the mud or whatever the case may be. But yeah, it feels like, Everything's changed. Internet, you know, as you mentioned, all of this stuff, pop culture, but in some ways, nothing has changed. Yeah, it's kind of crazy and not really in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you tackle a lot in the book, grief, race, coming home, politics, community. Was it hard to weave all of that into the story? I mean, it didn't seem like it would be hard as I was reading it. It all was woven together quite well. But did you really have to work to weave all of that in? Yeah, it, it, things just kind of threads of a story, whether, the, whether they're thematic or character or plot, they have a funny way of revealing themselves when your mind is ready to weave them into the narrative. You know, originally this novel was the story of a mysterious aircraft landing in a small rural community in the middle of the night. And it was going to be a story of insiders being suspicious of outsiders even if those suspicions were unfounded. Well, then the sheriff himself became an outsider. And then it became a story about race and memory. And then, the, I, you know, the sheriff has a daughter who, who, who comes home nursing her wounds from this horrible trauma she can't even quite verbalize. And then it became a story of fathers and daughters. 
And then it became a story of duplicity. It became a story of, you know, and these things just have a way of kind of revealing themselves. You know, I don't sit down to write a novel and say, okay, I'm going to write about fathers and daughters, race and memory, insider, outsider, and tying 1984 to the contemporary moment. Those things just kind of have a way of, of happening as you get deeper into characterizations and deeper into the writing. And I definitely want to keep this spoiler free, so I will try to word this in a way that spoils nothing. But your ability to bring Colleen's emotions to the page, to the forefront, to understand what she was going through was pretty amazing. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think that I, I, I feel really comfortable writing women because it feels, it's a lot of mental, emotional, intellectual, psychological maneuvering for me to get in that headspace. But at the same time, what, what interests me about writing from a female perspective or, or about women is good stories come from tension. They come from people being challenged and being forced to overcome or be beat down by challenges. And more often than not, that happens to women versus someone like me, straight, middle-class, white guy. My, my life has been relatively challenge-free, I'll be honest with you. And I don't make for a very interesting character. And so I've never really felt compelled to write about myself, but I have been really interested in writing about people who are not me because they have challenges in their lives that I do not and will not. And writing about that struggle and the overcoming of that struggle or even the being defeated by that struggle, I think is important. And I think it's important for people like myself to put themselves into that mindset, into that situation, because because my, my privilege allows me to visit it and portray it and not to live it. And I'm just so interested by that. And, and Colleen was a character that felt so real to me. And she's such a complicated character. You know, she's the sheriff's daughter. She went to law school, but she got pregnant while she was in law school. And so she graduated, but she never took the bar. And her husband, who didn't get as good of grades as she did, of course, he graduates and takes the bar and takes a job in Texas, so they have to leave North Carolina. And then they have this terrible tragedy happen to them. And, and so I just thought she was such an interesting and vital character. And she's also got this incredible intuition and ability to perceive feelings and facts and kind of has these investigatory skills that her father, who's a career law enforcement officer, completely overlooks her abilities to do that. And it just felt like a story that encapsulated the 1980s and the, and the gender dynamic. And I think that's exactly right. I guess I was just sort of in wonder as I was reading her character and what was happening to her and the fact that you were able to do that so effectively as a straight white male. I just thought that was kind of amazing. Thank you. You know, I'm, I'm married to a very strong woman and, you know, we talk a lot about about this kind of stuff. And I've always written about strong females because I, you know, I have a, a lot of strong females in my family from my grandparents all the way down to my, to my two daughters. And I'm just interested in that, which isn't to say that the men in my novels are, you know, hapless buffoon Homer Simpson characters because <laughs> they're not, but, but they're, they don't face the same challenges. And as I was saying, challenges and tension, that's what makes a story. And some people are born into that. Like my, my wife was born into a world that 
prejudges her and limits her. And she has to fight against that in ways that I, I really don't. I just was happy to see it portrayed so well on the page. Oh, thank you. Well, and again, another spoiler-free question, the ending. I was like, oh, so we can't talk about exactly what happened, but did you know that was always going to be the ending is my question. I knew I wanted the ending to be brief. I knew I wanted it to be resonant, and I knew I wanted it to be like this breathless gut punch. I knew I wanted that feeling. And the emotional tone the book ends on, I was writing toward that tone from the very beginning. I didn't know how I was going to get there. You know, writing for me is like trying to solve a math equation. I know what the final number is, and then I've got to go back and look at all the integers or values or whatever. X plus two equals six. So I got to figure out what that X is. But I knew I wanted the novel to end on six. And it was just a matter of getting there, of, of, of reworking the plot and the characterizations to end where I wanted the emotion to land. I'm really proud of the ending. I know it's been a little bit... To say controversial makes me sound more important than I am, but it's been controversial among readers when I've gone out on the road. They, they said, well, how can you do that? How could you? Or I love that you did that. I was so surprised, but, but no one yet has said I saw it coming. You know, and I, 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 you know there's, I do have a tendency to write kind of sad books sometimes, but in this novel, there are, there are a couple of humorous moments. I mean, nothing that begins to balance out that tragedy, but there's a couple of funny So tell me about the title. I'm always so curious about titles and covers because I think there's a lot more that goes into them that people sometimes realize. You have an interesting title. Yeah, the title for this one was one that my editor and I kind of bandied about, as we often do toward the end of the the editing process. You know, we always have a working title that feels, you know, I trick myself into believing that's going to be the title. and, And I know as it gets closer that it's not. But this title, you know, from the very beginning, when I, when I began working on this book, my daughters would say, well, who's driving this airplane? They, they called the book for a long time, The Mysterious Airplane. Who's driving the mysterious airplane, Daddy? Who's flying the mysterious airplane? And I didn't know. For a long time, I didn't know, which sounds absurd. But I, I didn't know how that aircraft got there. I didn't know what was in it. I didn't know who was flying it. And of course, obviously, I know that now. But I told them, I don't know, girls. I got I to gotta write this book and see, see what's revealed. And eventually, they said, we know who's flying it. A ghost. A ghost flew that airplane. And so the idea of it being a ghost just really stayed in my mind. And obviously a ghost isn't flying the airplane, but a ghost is driving much of this novel, the characterizations in the novel. You know, all of these characters in one way or another are haunted by something, whether it be a death, something as literal as a death, either caused by them or suffered by them when a loved one passes away or they're haunted by decisions they made or did not make. And for all of these characters, at one moment or another, these pasts come back to haunt them, and they come home to roost in their minds and their hearts. And also like the idea of beginning a title with that word, when. You know, this is going to happen. When ghosts come home, it's going to happen. And we're waiting in the novel to see when it happens for each individual character. Oh, I like that. I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it. I was more focused on the ghost part. Mm -hmm. I like that. Thank you. See, that's why I'm glad I asked. (laughs) What about the cover? It's just stunning. Thank you. You know, I was really happy when I saw it. I've been very fortunate with my covers. And this is actually a photo of Oak Island, North Carolina. So it's nice to see the place rendered on the page. But that cover, you know, when you first look at it, you think, oh, what a beautiful cover. And then you think, gosh, that's kind of a violent looking cover. It's like, is it sunset? Is it sunrise? Is it the middle of the night? Are those 
blues and pinks and purples? Or is it a bruise? Is it, what is it, you know? And uh, I was really, really happy with the cover. It's definitely haunting looking. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. Well, what are you working on now? I am working on another novel set here in the Cape Fear region uh, in Brunswick County, just across the Cape Fear River from Wilmington. And it is set in the days uh, following the toppling of the Silent Sam Confederate statue on the University of North Carolina's campus in Chapel Hill. So that is what I am at work on now. Well, that will be a very timely issue. Yes, it'll be my most contemporary novel. Now, you're a professor, right? You teach at the University of North Carolina at Asheville? I do, yes. I'm the alumni author in residence. So I teach fiction writing uh, at the university, and sometimes I teach a literature class. And this semester, I'm doing both. So I've been between uh, teaching two classes and having a book out. It's been an interesting semester, but uh, I'm enjoying it. My students are fantastic. And my my colleagues and the administration are are very, very kind to me and and, uh, do a wonderful job serving the students. Do you feel like that impacts your writing, teaching classes like that? I mean, do you learn things from that aspect of literature and talking about creative writing that would impact what you do? Oh, absolutely. You know, I read actively. It doesn't matter if I'm reading the back of a cereal box or, you know, a slick detective novel or whatever I'm reading, I'm reading it. I'm reading it and I'm asking myself, how does this work? How does this plot stand up? How do these characters, how, do, how are they developed? How does this get my attention? How does this keep me turning the page? And so when I read and I'm talking to students about their own work and what works and does not work in their stories, then I can think, well, I'm doing this in my story and it's not working either. So I should take my own advice. Or if I'm teaching a literature class and we're talking about various literary aspects, I think, oh my gosh, I should try, you know, doing this in my novel. So my teaching and my writing are very, very reciprocal. Not to say one couldn't happen with the other, but they, they, they certainly illuminate one another. Go hand in hand while they're happening. Yes, absolutely. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Oh my gosh, I have been on such uh, a successful reading jag uh, the past several months. One of the most powerful novels I've read, I mean, uh, nonfiction books I've read in a, in a while is by a writer named Jen Chaplin. It's called My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. I absolutely loved that book. It just left me breathless. My friend Jason Mott has a new novel out called Hell of a Book. Uh, my friend James Hahn Matson has a new novel out called Reprieve that I'm teaching in a couple of weeks that's really wonderful. One of the most brilliant novels I've read recently is, a, is another novel that I taught this semester. It's a novel called Severance by a writer named Ling Ma. It's a zombie anti-capitalist pandemic novel. It's just stunning. It's so brilliant. Um, so I've been, I've been in a, in a great uh, headspace as far as reading goes. A number of people have recommended Severance to me, and you're reminding me that I still have not purchased it. I need to do that. It is a perfect novel. I'll be honest with you. It's perfect. Well, good. I'm going to add it to my list again. And then I love Tell of a Book, and I interviewed Jason this summer. It was a really great conversation. He's great, and that book was so interesting and unique and intriguing. Yeah. I just really liked it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, Wiley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And I really appreciate your coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh my gosh, this was wonderful. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.